This is a Geek History of Time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. I'm Damien Harmony. I am a father, I am a Latin teacher, and I am uh, also a huge geek. I'm Ed Blaylock. I'm a father uh, a couple of years older than Damien. I'm a world history teacher, uh, and I'm... Also, a huge geek. Uh, I have been playing role-playing games since about the age of nine, and I've been a science fiction fan far longer than that. Uh, I was uh, uh, raised to be a Star Wars fan kind of by accident. I don't think my parents realized they were warping me in that way. Ah, warping. Yeah. Because that's Star Trek. That's, Uh, (laughs) yeah. I've had a long and abiding interest with science fiction. Uh, Not so much the books, but more like the visual media Uh, The more spectacular, the better. Also grew up a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, Saw um, Star Wars in utero. uh, So I heard the sounds, probably. There you go. Uh, Fell asleep at two years old uh, when Darth Vader entered in Empire Strikes Back. Woke up, and yes, I was too, Ed. uh, Woke up and wanted to be black like him because he was the hero. Uh, My mom said I couldn't be because being shiny, plastic black was not uh, something I could do. I, of course, then said, you never let me do anything I want to do. Nice. So that's uh, that's a bit of my geek cred. I've been playing role-playing games probably since 8, uh, seriously since probably 13, uh, and now as a father bringing other kids into it uh, since uh, my daughter turned 5. Uh, lately, I've been uh, reading a few books. Uh, one of the ones I've, I've gone back and started reading again is Punching Nazis and Other Good Ideas by Keith Lowell Jensen. Uh, it's an exploration of the punk scene in Sacramento in the 90s, as well as why it's okay and, in fact, recommended that we punch Nazis. You read any books? On every opportunity, I think, <laughs> really, and twice on Sundays. Uh, right now, um, I've been uh, doing an awful lot of background reading on uh, what we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> um, and I am uh, working my way through Honor in the Dust, a history of uh, the American occupation of the Philippines. <laughs> and when I'm not doing either one of those two things, I'm trying very hard to uh, do my homework in uh, well, um uh, Meyer's uh, Swordsmanship Manual from the 1500s. Nice. And uh, so right now, as far as uh, what gaming I'm actually doing, I'm really excited uh, to be waiting for the arrival of the newest Battletech mm. uh, basic boxed set. Uh, I pre-ordered it a while ago because I'm, I'm, I'm a whore for these kinds of things. I'm a collector as much as anything else, and this has some gorgeous models in it. So that's a miniatures game. Yes, oh. yes. A uh, tabletop war game that we're going to be talking about in another episode, sure. and several new episodes coming up. Sure. Um, and uh, I have been um, kind of dormant in our mm-hmm. D&D game. but I've missed you. Uh, yeah, well, I've missed you guys. And I am... Uh, right now, equally dormant in uh, a first edition AD&D uh, campaign with a different group of friends. Uh, how about you? What do you got going on? Uh, well, uh, my children are on the third level of their dungeon. Nice. Uh, my son is silly about trains, and it turns out there are train tracks on this level because uh, it's, they're going through an old mine. So nice. there's a, a car. Okay. Uh, my daughter tried to hide on it from a gnomish wizard who controls zombies. Uh, the zombies attacked her cart and disengaged the brake, and she went rolling down to Indiana Jones style. So nice. it was a lot of fun for the two of them. I like it. Uh, and they've been fighting zombies, and they've, they've found out that their cleric is actually pretty good at turning the undead. Uh, the other game that I'm playing is uh, the game that we started playing together, and that is a 5th edition uh, D&D game. 
Uh, we just finished killing off a bunch of gnolls. Killed a displacer beast, uh, as well as a human wannabe Man. gnoll. You're missing out, my friend. I am. Something about being a good dad. Just yeah, it kind of gets, kind of crimps the style. Yeah. So, and eventually, hopefully, my little brother will uh, start up a Scion game. Uh, so, um, I'm really Internal looking Internal squeeing intensifies. Yes, yes. I'm looking forward to that, because um, I also uh, got in on the Kickstarter for that. So oh, I nice. eventually get the hard copies. So. Very cool. Yeah. Ed, I got a question for you. Yeah. Do you like stuff? I like stuff. You like things? Uh, some things. Yeah. Not I'm, all I'm things, but there's a pretty broad section stuff. of things I do like, yes. Okay, thanks, Alexa. Uh, yeah, so that, that was not... Creepy. Um, Thank so, you, shady government <laughs> listening device. Nah, it's Jeff Bezos. It's worse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so actually, <coughs> half and half. Um, yeah. But uh, this is the part uh, where we would actually advertise for things and stuff. Yeah. If there so, was any kind of a pitch going on here, yeah, this would be where this would it would be. be. This would be. So where you know, if you have stuff you want to sell to people things. who are or things yes. to people who are like hardcore raging nerds. Yeah. This we are your people. Yeah. We so, will shill. Any well, not, well, anything, not anything, but yeah. but things a lot of stuff. Like. We'll things we, stuff like, we like, we'll totally shill. So, like for instance, if you were going to like I don't know advertise uh, for these delicious cinnamon rolls that you buy at Nugget every time you come over to my house, uh, you might talk about how they're both sweet yet slightly savory, and yeah. how uh, they're bite size and yet each bite is a satisfying bite. I mean, it doesn't leave you I wanting for anything. Yeah, no, and and they're they're essentially uh, crack in a box mm -hmm. uh, as far as the hit that you get from them. Yes. Um, and if I like cinnamon, I would be all over them. Every yeah. once in a while, I try one thinking, I should like them. I should like these. And if I did like them, I would like these. Yes. 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 So, there cool. we go. <laughs> that's us. That's so, us attempting to be clever and witty at selling stuff. That, that's that's and us. And things. Giving an ad. And things. Giving an ad. So, so. Uh, you'll hear more of those. Hopefully, we can get a, a sponsorship and, and start making some money off of this uh, and advertising for things. Uh, who knows? Maybe mattresses. Uh, I would like, like. I like sleep. I I, I, don't I don't get very much of it right now, I but actually, I love it I so much. I, I don't like sleep at all. I feel really? like I'm, I'm missing out. Like um, yeah, yeah, it bothers me. Oh. Um, and I, it, it bothers me that it bothers me. Like I recognize it's something broken. So in there's my brain. there's like there's like meta bother going on there. Oh, massive on massive. on a huge meta level. Yeah, that's really absolutely. Insane. Yeah, it's 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 not good. I lose yeah. a lot of sleep over it. So. <laughs> Uh, One of us is a stand-up comic. Can you tell who it is, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And then we would advertise other things that we also like. So, yeah. like mattresses or linens or, or, or I don't know. Like dice. Some sort of dice. Chessex, if, if yes. you want to throw some money our way. Yeah. Or if you're your guys. a friendly local gaming store. Uh, yeah. That, you, know. you know. That doesn't run you know. far to the right of the Koch brothers. Like, I'd be... <laughs> Happy to shill for you, like, and even if you do, uh, I think you know, I'd be okay you know, for we, you. we'd be okay shilling for you because yeah. you know, on some levels, you, yeah. Know, you yeah. know, you offer a good service, but uh, yeah, so we would definitely advertise uh, for such things. <coughs> but in the meantime, uh, I would just tell you to go out and buy Keith Lowell Jensen's book, "Punching Nazis and Other Good Ideas." It's a it's a fun read. The chapters are short. Uh, they're very personal. Uh, it's very um, very funny. He's a stand up comic oh, yeah. as well. Um, oh, and very him. conventional about his life. Yeah, I've seen him do his stuff. He yeah. is very funny. I can believe that book is is well worth reading. Uh, and I'm just going to throw out here because you mm -hmm. know I want to try to you know beg favors from somebody. If you're going to buy a training sword, hey, 
Geek Nation. Uh, something went wrong with the audio, so cut out the beginning of the intro, but rest assured, uh, Ed was shilling hard and doing a really good job of it, and then his uh, opening to uh, the Warhammer 40k essentially amounted to me not knowing much of anything and making a joke about Margaret Thatcher's butt. Uh, I apologize for the interruption, uh, but we're going to pick up right where we left off because it was still very early in the, uh, in the process. Uh, and uh, his, his explanation still works really well. ...system here as well, but it's it's a lot less formalized. You know, if you have more money, you're kind of an upper class, but there's not the well, unless same... Unless it's in the South, and then it's well, just a color. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. But, so, yes, I think to a certain extent, there there was there was a great deal more uh, buy-in in terms of, look, we're, we're all in this together, keep our sticks on the ice kind of thing, uh, which I just used a Canadianism talking about the U.K., Nobody get on me about that. I'm yes. trying here. So, uh, but the war, the yeah, the, yeah. Well, yeah, the war ends in '45, and yeah. their their economy is still a shit show. Okay, they're yeah. they're they're a fumbling weak man, and um, they're an in, old boxer who's like had more than the fights they should have. Yes, I mean they used yeah. to be the champion. A lot of head blows. Yeah, a lot of blows yeah. to the head. Punch yeah. drunk now. Yeah, and and economically speaking, and then. So in the UK, rationing didn't stop with the end of the war. Okay. Rationing stayed in place until 1954. And in some right. cases, after the war, because all the boys came home, rationing worse. actually got stricter. Right. Um, and at, you know, as a result of all of this, in 45, as the war ends, mm -hmm. the conservatives lost control of parliament. Okay, now the conservatives had Winston Churchill. Churchill, yeah. Churchill okay. was the 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 guy, the leader of the of the Conservative Party at that point. Now, how long had they been in power? They had been in power. I remember seeing this, but I didn't write it down in my notes. They'd been in power since um, since the I want to say the before the war. Okay, so, so like since thirty eight so or like I'm thirty Munich? more like thirty thirty four. Okay. Okay. Uh, they they'd been in power for a long time. Okay, um, and I'll at some point have to look it up and sure. issue some kind of correction. But they they had been in power for a long time, and mm -hmm. at the end of the war, everybody said, "Look, we're sick and tired of this. The war is over," you know. And they elected Labor, and Labor took control of Parliament in 1945, mm -hmm. and um, they they nationalized 20 percent of the nation's economy over the course of the next several years. Um, Wait, they laid twenty percent of the 20%. nation's economy got nationalized. Now, in 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 our terms, how much of our economy is nationalized now? Um, by way of comparison, not anything like twenty percent. Okay. Um, and again, smaller society. So smaller, it's even more smaller society. Felt. So it's much more. Yeah. So it's more acutely felt. Okay. So, as examples of what they did, they founded the National Coal Board and they nationalized the Bank of England in 1946. That nationalized all of coal production, mm -hmm. which back then was energy production. Right. And the the central bank mm -hmm. was taken out of private hands, nas nationalized. That's forty six. Wow. They formed the National Health Service in forty six. Nationalized. They nationalized healthcare. Right then, forty six. Okay. Now, it's interesting to note uh, a National Health Service had mm -hmm. been proposed in a white paper by conservative members of Parliament back in nineteen forty two. But it was under the Attlee ministry, this this liberal... Clement Attlee. Yeah. yeah who was, this, I think, the last one who had been in charge in the uh, in the Labor Party, right? Like, leading up to the conservative yes, takeover. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
So so Attlee uh, took over uh, mm-hmm. as as prime minister, and they they enacted this the National Health Service under him. It started operations in '48. So okay, okay. In 1946, mm-hmm. again, the very very next year after they, they took control of Parliament, they passed the National Insurance Act, which instituted an old age unemployment and infirmity pension paid for by workers uh, with a with a flat national insurance fee. It's kind of the British version of Social Security, Social. which is on on that side of the pond is much more inclusive. It it covers a lot more stuff. Okay. Uh, along with this, soldiers' pensions were increased. Oh. And a greater number of soldiers' pensions got paid out. Uh, after World War One. there had been like three out of four. Uh, I'm sorry. After World War One, it had been one in three. So one claim out of three for a soldier's pension got paid. Wait, wait, where, wait. <laughs> I'm sorry. In order to qualify, uh-huh. there, okay. there were conditions that you had to meet as far okay. as, you know, being wounded, suffering. You know, it's like, it was like a disability pension. Oh, okay. So it wasn't it just... Wasn't, it wasn't just a, you were you served in the armed forces, you're going to get a pension. Okay. It was a, you know... It was specifically, I, I like, had, VA help. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I was thinking, like, in terms of the bonus marchers <laughs> yeah, oh, in yeah. America. Yeah, no. Where they're like, we were promised a bonus. Yeah. And if you, like, promise something, you should you deliver should on deliver more than on it. 33%. Yeah, and then, okay. you know, uh, you send MacArthur to kick them all out of the park in front of the White House. Or you send uh, your wife to bring them tea. And yeah. make things better. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. You, you pick one. You know. Yeah, well, we did. So, so before World War One, it it had been one in three of these had okay. been had been paid by the government. After World War Two, after mm-hmm. forty six, they started paying out three out of four. So they're covering a much greater percentage. Uh, they're providing a benefit to a much greater percentage of these guys. Okay. Uh, in nineteen forty nine, they then exempted these benefits from taxation. So the income you got from from the old age pension, unemployment pension, all yeah. of this, totally untaxed. Okay. So after tax income. So essentially, if you're a wounded soldier and you get a, a pension back then of like 5000 a year, okay. uh, you, and I have no idea what in real dollars that would be, but let's pretend 5000 because that's easy for me to do math. Uh, prior to that, you'd have to pay tax on that. Yeah. And then after that, they said, no, no, all of our tax money went into paying that for you. Boom. Bingo. Okay. Yeah, and so they they exempt. So they're really taking care of the common they, welfare. Yes, this is this is they are founding the British welfare state as we have known it ever since. And this is the Labour Party doing this? Labour Party doing this? Okay, but the the Conservative Party is the cons- well. Here's the deal: at at this point, the Conservative uh-huh. Party was out of power, couldn't really stop them. Okay, I mean they could they could you know try to they could resist they could try to gum up the works do whatever they you know like but, like well like and it's a, a parliamentary party, system. Minority. So yeah. if your party's in charge. <clears throat> It gets to do. It gets to do what it wants to do, and then there's actual accountability. And there's actual accountability <laughs> at the time of the, the election. You, out could, if you don't yeah. like it, okay. precisely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, also in 1946, at the same time that they're increasing pensions, that they're nationalizing those parts of the economy that I mentioned, mm-hmm. they instituted a development program to dramatically increase the availability of housing. They passed two pieces mm-hmm. of legislation. In 46, it was the New Towns Act. And in 47, it was the Town and Country Planning Act. And that gave local authorities, mm-hmm. so think the... This is WPA. UK, yeah, kind of. Yeah. And and it, it essentially uh, freed up the equivalent of county government. Okay. In, in the United States terms. Uh, uh, gave them more freedom to obtain property to build publicly funded housing 
subsidized housing. Okay. They provided housing to people with subs- subsidies for rent. Okay. Okay, so you've got now the beginnings of the state that we mm. see in the UK today where, you know, low-income housing is heavily subsidized by the government. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're, the government is spending money in a very Keynesian manner in mm-hmm. order to generate... Prime the pump. Prime the pump. Yeah. Um, Which and is what so, we were doing during, during the Depression yeah. and leading into the war. Yeah. yeah. So four out of five homes built under this plan were council housing, which is, uh-huh. you know, publicly funded, you oh, know, wow. uh, subsidized, you know, housing. Right. Now, just real quick, yeah. I, would, I would also point out that there were other countries that were doing things like this in the 1930s. Yes. Uh, the, the Soviet Union, that's an obvious given. Well, yeah. Um, but also Nazi Germany was yes. huge on this. What's interesting about the welfare state? There's, there's, there's everybody's in a it. A lot of historical, a lot of historical ink has been spilled over the, the the welfare state, and people who are hardcore libertarians, hardcore small government type people, really mm-hmm. like to point out that you know this is what you know Stalin and the Nazis were these welfare state types. I like that those two are in the same in the same category without the word fighting. Yeah, well, like yeah, somehow. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah. They, yeah. Um, uh, and, and they like to point that out, but, you know, uh, so was Bismarck. Yeah. You Iron know, and blood. B- Bismarck, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. and, and the thing is, there were, they had different reasons. Um, you know, on the left, mm-hmm. politicians wanted to enact the welfare state in order to eliminate social inequality. Mm-hmm. On the right, politicians saw the value of the welfare state as a way to blunt communist and socialist revolution. It was, you know what, if we give people what they want, we can still maintain liberal democracy as we know it now Mm -hmm. with these kind of modifications. Or we can try not to do this and we can, you know, have the threat of a workers' revolution where we all wind up, you know, against the wall with blindfolds. And I know which one I prefer, you know. Right, Um, And and so So you see this movement toward the welfare state from the very far right and from the kind of center left. Right. Uh, You know, the far left, well, Stalin and, and, you know, the Soviet Union did this stuff out of the socialist, you know, ideal. But then in the moderate left, it's, it's, we don't. We, we don't we don't want to have the far left get control of things and kill right. us too right you know um and and so it's it's yeah there's this but there's this tension everybody you know. in Europe culturally is on board for <clears throat> a welfare state yeah on yeah. on yeah on on that side of the Atlantic mm-hmm. it it became uh part of and I'm flaking on the term whatever the the window is of what rational discussion oh okay rational ideas like it was just part it was yeah like, it was like it was electricity it, is a part of our podcast yes it, it, it was it be. was yeah it was so it, it yeah. was the background yeah. social contract kind of understanding mm-hmm. under which everybody operated right. was this rem- this is this is the paradigm under which right. in which we're all going to operate politically and nixon in the 70s even said we're all keynesians yeah, like, like so, Nixon. Yeah, Nixon. You know, bloody yeah. Nixon, for God's sake. <laughs> so, so okay. So, so yeah. everybody's on board for this. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. we had programs across our on our side of the pond that were absolutely about that. This. Were I mean, well, yes. you know, during the depression, we mm-hmm. we almost got there. I mean, you know, F- yeah. FDR's, you know, WPA mm-hmm. is you know one of the biggest examples I can think of. You know, yeah. public public construction, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then even after that, you know, uh, the idea to to put together public housing. Yeah, you know, federally funded public housing. Yeah, under well, the GI housing, bill. Yeah, GI is bill. Our version of soldiers' pensions. Very, in some very. Ways. Yeah, yeah. In, in a lot of ways. Okay. Uh, you know, with, with a very 
<coughs> we we think we're a frontier nation, you know, by your bootstraps kind of twist on it. But yes. Which is funny because we had an essayist actually write in 1893 that the frontier was closed. Yeah. Frederick Jackson Turner. Yeah. Well, yeah okay. So, but, so yeah. their idea was... Our mentality oh, yeah. hasn't... We, we as a country have not well, absorbed that. That's that. also the geography. Like, yeah, we right. can spread out. And yeah. we come from a country of people who said, I don't like this. I'm leaving. Yeah. And we came here and pushed everyone else to the side. Yeah. Well, or, and as soon as... And the people who but, got here looked around and went, I got too many neighbors. I'm leaving. Right. West. I got and, too many Kentucky, neighbors. I'm yeah. leaving. I went, you know, and, and now... You get out to San Diego and they built piers to yeah, go further Yeah, to go west. further. Further west. Yeah. As far as they could go. Whereas England is an island is so they got a yeah, there's, there's there's not a lot of places not a lot to of go room. okay yeah i just want to point out that when we were talking about england a moment ago mm. whoever's listening to this you know all three thank of you, you both of you yeah yeah thank you uh you couldn't <laughs> see it but talking about britain uh, being an island we both held our hands up in this kind of you know jagged kind of yeah. you know contained space kind of way um so <laughs> so these two this housing yes was constructed there's over a million new homes built uh, by 1951. Now, did they ban the Jews like we did? No. Okay, so it's not. Yeah, like yeah, no. Suburbs. No, 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 no. No, it's okay. not Levittown. No. Okay, Levittown, privately funded. Right. You know, Good somebody point. making a buck. This yeah. is welfare state. Different, yeah. different. Thing. Very different. So, um, and understand, in, when I was reading the article that I that I got this information from, mm-hmm. uh, they they mentioned over a million new homes were built during this period of time, and they said this did not meet targets. But it is, but it is an achievement nonetheless. Right. This this was ambitious stuff. This this was well, look, they, like you, know, you said, they'd been blitzed. Yes. Yeah. So not only had they been blitzed, but also they'd lived in a society prior to this where housing was woefully inadequate, especially in urban centers. Yes. So they're really trying to fix that because yeah. one thing that creates hotbed for fascism is well and poverty and revolutionary marxism yeah. any, any kind of revolutionary right. ideology i just don't any, want to horseshoe that well yeah no they yeah. fought against yeah oh yeah no i, I oh, yeah. although they were deathly afraid of they were terrified absolutely, right. absolutely I, right. that's the reason i want to make sure to mention marxism yeah. you know yeah, leninism in that in that space is because yeah. that's what they were afraid of yeah. as far as they knew fascism was dead yeah <laughs> 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 good times well. <laughs> French philosophers uh, actually at least said, well, shit. it could come back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, okay. So, so anyway, sorry. Missed their um, targets. Sad wow. face. So, so yeah, they missed their targets, but it was an, an achievement nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, very British kind of way of saying it. <laughs> we kept our end up. Uh, very post-war British way of saying it. Yeah. I should be very clear. So, in 1947, they nationalized the electrical grid. Okay. And uh, formed British Electric Authority. Uh, British Transport Commission was formed in 1948, nationalizing railways, inland waterways, and uh, not all, but a significant portion of road haulage. So, like Teamsters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so now uh, it should also be noted here at the same time that broadcast media mm-hmm. had been run as a pseudo arm of the government. I mean, they had you know independence uh, editorially, journalistically, but it mm-hmm. was. Funded by tax dollars. There sure. was a national license that you have to pay, had to pay back then, still, I think, do. Uh, yes, you do. You have to pay a license fee if you buy a TV set or a radio. Oh, wow. That's okay. part of the purchase price of whatever you're buying. And oh. that pays for Auntie Beeb. Right. And so the BBC uh, had been this semi-governmental part of the economy since the 20s, okay. even, even earlier than that. Now, uh, so when we talk about the consensus, except for... 
very specific differences of position on nationalization versus private enterprise and a tug of war over nationalized versus local control Mm -hmm. of services, both labor and the conservatives subscribed to what we call the post-war consensus. Uh, Welfare state was built largely by labor and allowed to remain in place by the conservatives. So in 51, Mm -hmm. you'll notice the date 51 comes up a lot in in some of this stuff. That's because that's when the Attlee ministry went away. Okay. Because they they went for new elections and the conservatives won just narrow enough a majority to take back control of the government. And Churchill. And Churchill returned. By the way, I very highly recommend, uh-huh. very highly recommend uh, the Netflix series The Crown. Oh, okay. About uh, Elizabeth. Okay. Current Queen Elizabeth. Sure. The second. Um, and uh, the the portrayal of Churchill in that series is mm-hmm. a remarkable acting tour de force. Mm. Um, and it it goes into the political infighting and the concerns that everybody in the in the conservative government had. During that time in the 1951-52 sure. era, it's it's remarkable. It's also, great TV. Also set at that time as a, a TV show that I, I used to watch. Uh, I would like to get back to it eventually, but called The Midwife. Yes, and it's it's talking about, about the, the foundation of the NHS. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's set. Yeah, right I have not time. had the chance to catch it, but everybody who who has seen it's it tells really me how good. great it is. It's really good. Okay, so um, both parties were Keynesian. Mm-hmm. Both parties were like, no, prime the pump, fuel, fuel uh, job creation by putting all the money we can into the economy. You know, the government, if, if the government runs a deficit, it's fine. that's okay because, yeah. we'll you get know, there eventually. we'll get there eventually. And to a certain extent, Keynesian economics is based on the idea that it's all monopoly money at the end of the day anyway, you know. I mean, that's, that's, all that's, promissory notes. Yeah, you know, that's that's kind of the, the man behind the curtain in Keynesianism. But... Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they all supported significant government spending uh, to a greater or lesser extent. Labor was like, no, man, we're going to spend all the money. Conservatives were like, we're going to spend most of the money. You sure. know, was the difference. Um, so even after the conservatives gained power in 51, the underpinnings of this new welfare state were left intact. Labor, like we talked about, labor saw it as a way to equalize the class society, system. Yeah. the class system. And uh, the conservatives saw it as a way to keep actual communists at bay because that's what they were now terrified of because we beat the Nazis and now we have Stalin and the guys that came immediately after him, Khrushchev and those guys. And, oh, my God, they're terrifying and they're the Reds like we've talked about in a previous episode. And, oh, my God, they're all – they're coming for us. And so power changed hands between parties after this. But no one rejected the nobody notion rejected of, the yeah. basic notion that hey look this is the system we're operating under this is this is how things work. Um, now at the same time all of this was going on domestically, the empire, the British Empire, the one that the sun had never set on at least in over a century, mm-hmm. was falling apart. It's important to remember that pre-war uh, in the 20s, Britain had controlled 23% of the world's population and 24% of its land mass. Wow. That's something for an island nation that had yeah. a navy. Yeah. That it had is. the most powerful navy in the world. The British but, Navy But the navy doesn't... The con- they're not ground pounders. No, That's, they're not. So, but, but, British, but British Tommies uh-huh. had been marching all over the world and it... In, in an interesting parallel with the Romans, one of the things the Brits were really good at doing mm-hmm. was 
taking control of an area, mm-hmm. giving some level of semi-local control to the people living there, and right. then getting them to do the ruling buy into the empire and send their soldiers to fight on behalf of the empire. This is what got us Idi Amin, by the way. This is what straight up, yeah, like, oh, yeah. Like, literally, he's a British <laughs> special service. Yeah. Fighter. Yes. Yeah. It is. Yes. Uh, this. This is what got us the Gurkhas. Yeah. Who are possibly pickles. possibly the most terrifying individuals on the planet. Oh. Like. Not pickles. No, not gherkins. Oh, okay. Gurkhas. Sorry, okay. I didn't yeah. hear it. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I, no. I was like, oh, no. cool. Yoda's no. Yoda species. Yeah. No. Nice. Yeah. yeah that's Wordy good. and green. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, but this, yeah, the this Gurkhas are scary you know, shit. Yeah, they're terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and a whole bunch of other provincial. Uh, military kind of kind of units that spent a lot of time bleeding and dying in World War II. Yes, for the sake of the crown, the crown back in England. Right, you know that while, they'd never see. Well, that they'd never see. They were yeah. fighting the Japanese off in Asia. They were fighting, you know, the Nazis in Africa. Right. You know, the Italians in Africa. And you know, if you want to hear somebody who's bitter about the British Empire, talk to anybody who was an Anzac soldier. Mm-hmm. And you'll get some stories, you know. <laughs> um, and and so so this empire is crumbling. This, this empire now is crumbling. But I want I want to yeah. talk a little bit about just exactly how big it had been. Okay. If I say that it stretched from you know Cape Town to Zanzibar, that doesn't sound like much because that's not very far. But it stretched from Cape Town to Zanzibar the long way round, like. Oh. Like, when they said the sun never set on the British Empire, literally, right. it was always daylight somewhere, somewhere where there was a British flag flying. Um, and the whole thing was run from and for the benefit of Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, now, its biggest part was India mm-hmm. in terms of... The so jewel in the crown. The jewel in the crown. Uh-huh. In terms of population and economic importance, that sure. was it. Um, but you know, there were vital resources in Burma, Mm -hmm. in Malaya, in other parts of, you know, in Africa and other parts of the empire that were, that were economically critically important. The smallest part would be hard to define, but the Falkland Islands are probably in contention and we're going to get back to that. More penguins than people. Yeah. Uh, between 45 and 65, the empire gradually fell apart. Actually, fun little uh, statistic about that. Yeah. Prior to 1945, any uprising by a colonial power, by people who had been colonized, yeah. by Europeans, was found zero success up to 1945. After 1945, not a single one found failure. Yeah. It's it's really quite something. No, well, but, yeah. And it, 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 is, it is a very stark reminder of just exactly how badly Europe got the shit kicked out of it. Well, and also, when you train people to go shoot other white people, <laughs> they learn they, they can shoot they white learned, people. Yeah, and, and, they, and they learned that they can actually be pretty good at it. Yeah, yeah. and and like they yeah. don't let go of that training after. You don't yeah, detrain no, you them. Yeah, you don't, you don't yeah. train them to go fight and then have them suddenly forget. So yeah, to no. save your empire... You have enabled your empire to be lost. To be yes, you yeah. you have you which have, good. Well, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, so uh, between forty five and sixty five, mm-hmm. empires falling apart, and the Attlee Ministry actively worked to decolonize, mm. starting with India because they're spending all this money at home. Right. They don't have the money to spend on trying to make sure India stays part of the empire to make sure that South Africa stays part of the empire. Right. You know, so it was a conscious choice. It not was. To try it was. To keep them in. Yes, there. Okay. There was at least by the the first labor government after the war. There was uh-huh. a conscious choice to try to keep them in place. Uh, 
uh, you know, Churchill railed against it after he came back into power. He didn't want to let India go. Right. Well, I mean, you know, and that's Bevin was against it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and so that was one of the big differences between conservatives and labor during this time period was, you know, whether or not, like whether or not to hold on to the empire. Labor was in power immediately after the war and they were like, yeah, well, no, we're doing it. <laughs> you know, um, India and Pakistan split off in 47 mm-hmm. ahead of the ministry's schedule. <laughs> the ministry had been like, we're going to let him. So very British. We're going to let him go. Yeah, we're going to let him go in 48. Right. Was, was you know, they're going to, they're going to, you know. Because we need to squeeze more we're resources. Ready. Well, you know, and, and there was this fear of, well, if we let them go too soon, they're, such they're not, they're not going to understand what they're doing. We have to train <laughs> them up better, you know. And, well, and good on them for at least acknowledging that, yeah. hey, we need to train civil servants because yeah. when Belgium left the DRC, the Congo, yeah. they, they unscrewed the light bulb <laughs> and, and, and left. And left. Like, yeah, they, they, like, they, you know, yeah. whoever the last one is out, you know, turn off the lights right. and, you know, and take, take, the light take, take all the wiring. They actually took take, the light bulbs. Take, yeah, really. Yeah, they really did. I had did. not known that. Yeah. Holy cow. That was a, yeah, it was insane. Yeah, well, you know, like, screw hey, the, thanks for all the rubber. Yeah, screw the Belgians. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only one of them has ever been any good is Hercule Poirot, um, <laughs> and he's fictitious. So, um, so, so the schedule for India and Pakistan split off had been: we're gonna, we're gonna let him go in forty-eight. We're gonna train up civil service. We're gonna do this stuff. Sure. And while we're at it, we're gonna get as much you know revenue out of him as Not we can, sure. you know, because we need it. Um, but Mountbatten, who was there, who was okay. the last viceroy, okay, said. Uh, if we try to hold on to him any longer, they're going to kill everyone. And I mean everyone. They're okay. going to kill all of us Brits who are here because we're the man keeping them down. And right. they're going to kill each other because they've wanted to kill each other for the last 400 years or however long it's been that we've been here. Okay. And we've been... Stoking those fires, we, to be honest. We, Having we, we one have group been, police we have another. Been, we have been... On the one hand, actively stoking those fires, and then on the other hand, doing stuff to keep them, you mm-hmm. know, from doing that. We've been oppressing both of them in ways to keep right. them from doing that. Once we're gone, the, the lid cooker. will blow off the pressure yeah. cooker, and you know, and and so in forty seven, um, Mountbatten said we we can't hold on to them right. that long, and they moved the time. He moved the timetable up, and when they split. Mm-hmm. Um, basically there, I mean, anybody who studied the history of that knows that, you know, all of the, you know, the Muslims who were living in what became India and the Hindus in what became Pakistan had to pack up sticks, you know, pick, pick up stakes and, yeah. and move. Um, and, yeah, partition. and, you know, in partition and, you know, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people wound up dying in right. sectarian violence anyway. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say um, anyway. I would say as a result well, yeah. of the way the British had run had been, things. Well, yeah, yeah, and, and had left it. Yeah, yeah. Dis- and, despite despite the best efforts of the guys who tried to keep everything under control sure. at the last minute, sure, is kind of what I meant. Yeah. Um. So that was forty seven. Now okay. a rare uh, exception mm-hmm. to this, we're going to let the empire go, was the Malay emergency in nineteen forty eight. Okay. In Malaya. Um, there there was an insurrection, mm-hmm. and the British clamped down on it very very hard. The, mm-hmm. the, it was it was by Malay Chinese, so ethnic Chinese living in what is now part of Malaysia. Okay, uh, and they were communists. 
mm-hmm. was a communist uprising in Malaya, and that was the one example where this decolonization movement mm-hmm. was not applied by the labor government. They said, well, no, okay, these guys are communists. We can't, we can't let go of this colony when there is this chance that it's going to go red. Now that sounds very, and what year was that? 40? 48. Now that's very echoey of ultimately the Truman Doctrine, which is yes. we can't let Greece and let Turkey mm-hmm. go communist even though they're not part of our geostrategic Mm-hmm. Sphere, they are part of our ideological geostrategic. Sphere. Yeah, so yeah, and, they're, and, they're, they're yeah, and, and Truman there. Truman doctrine turns into Kennedy doctrine, turns into Korea, yeah. oh, turns yeah. into Vietnam. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's it's the same. It's it's the dominoes right theory. Not and we we don't we we can't we can't let Ma- Malaya go. This is the labor government. This is the labor government. Right, labor. Yeah. You know, the left. So, yeah, the left doing this. Um, and so. This, this process continued of decolonization. Sure. Now in 56, okay. the conservatives are back in power, and um, the Suez crisis occurred. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Nasser mm-hmm. tr- nationalized the Suez Canal. This is in Egypt. This is in Egypt. Yes. yes. Now For, Egypt is its own country by this point. Yes, Egypt uh, has a lot of, broken away. Yeah, a lot of British colonies in Africa are now uh, African Independent. countries. Yes. Um, and a lot of French colonies are starting to turn into African countries as yes. well. So, yeah, you absolutely yeah. see yeah. a nationalization of yes. resources that used to be yeah. used by the British Empire. Yeah, and now Nasser is one of these fascinating characters out of you know 20th century history mm-hmm. who... We don't really know whether he was serious about... I'm going to go with the Soviets or not, mm-hmm. but he made a lot of noise about sure. making friends with the USSR, mm-hmm. you know, in that way that, you know, students who want to try to get attention will, you know, threaten to do stuff, you know, and you wind up, you know, engaging with them one way or another. Right. You know, um, he he made a lot of noise where it sounded like he might go over to the dark side. Mm-hmm. In quotes, the red you know, side, going yeah. over the red side, and so him nationalizing the canal was this, you know, hyper fear of communist, you know, panic kind of moment. Anytime somebody nationalizes something, yeah, that people are afraid that they're going communist, which yeah. is funny because Britain had just nationalized had just nationalized a fifth the of their economy, yeah. yeah. But but in this case, it was the Suez Canal, which is vital to even to this day. It's vital for trade. You know, all over the world. Well, in '53, Iran had tried to nationalize their oil fields. Mm-hmm. So you have, and and the the British were were heavily entrenched in the Arab and Persian worlds. Oh yeah. And so, I mean, I I believe on my uh, Axis and Allies map, it was called Anglo-Egyptian Sudan. Like, yes. Uh, so you have a tremendous fear of all of these folks that the British had previously colonized, nationalizing everything and uh, essentially crippling. Uh, the structures of empire, even if empire was on its way out. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so so while all of that is going on, while mm-hmm. while you know this this kind of double whammy of of decay is happening, um, the, the Suez Crisis happens, and the British decide mm-hmm. that they're going to invade, and they create this whole. I mean, it was an honest to god conspiracy theory, and they failed. 
the the long and the short of it is they they tried to get the Israelis involved. They just a bunch of people. It was a complicated scheme. Mm-hmm. Militarily, mm-hmm. militarily, they totally succeeded. The SAS showed up, kicked ass. They okay. took m- forceful military control mm-hmm. of the Suez Canal, but they couldn't hold on to it because Truman mm-hmm. was pissed. Pissed. Why? Because the British had not consulted with the United States when they were doing all of this planning. Now, isn't this the one time the U.S. and the USSR ended up on the same side of an issue? Yeah. In the Security Conference? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And in and in the United Nations Security Council, basically everybody said, the fuck, UK? <laughs> um, and, and they faced so much political blowback from uh-huh. everybody else in the world. And remember, mm-hmm. this time they owed us... Hundreds of millions of dollars, mm-hmm. billions of dollars oh, in, yeah. in loans, um, and and they were not strong enough militarily to stand without NATO, right? Against what whatever, they whatever, the what, they, what they what they deemed as the Red Menace, and you know the the president of the United States basically got on the phone and read the Riot Act to the Prime Minister of the UK, and they pulled everything out. Wow! And they abandoned. They had won. Like, militarily, right. the, the British Army and SAS had right. taken control of the canal. They owned it. And then they they had to back had out to with their back. tail between their legs politically. Now, after this, Truman ordered a military parade in, in America, right? Because that's how we celebrate our greatness. Is that No. 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 He, oh. he said the opposite. He oh. said, we, we don't do that because that would make us look weak. Oh. Weird. That would make us look weak. Wow. Yeah. Well, was it was it the cost that made him not want to do that, or was it just an ideological? No, no. It was it was just simply an ideological thing that we're Americans and we don't do that stuff because oh. that's because that's what totalitarian governments like the USSR do. Okay. Wait. 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 So, like, like, let's say that like Truman was, or let's go back a little bit to Teddy Roosevelt because yeah. he was boisterous and yeah, yeah, he yeah. would have loved him. Oh, he did. Yeah, oh, parade would be great. And, and but no, not that. Okay, we well, don't we don't about, do that. Like, what about like pushing other people out of the way so you can go further up the line? Like, he would have done no, no. He no. was at the back yeah. of the line with his yeah. cowboy. Yeah, weird. Yeah, well, something must have changed. Funny. So that. yeah, something. So oh, it was nice when we had you know decorum, decorum. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's part of our political system. So anyway, sorry, rhapsodizing <laughs> about the past. Um. So. What what wound up happening uh, was this 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 wound up the, the Suez the failure of of the seizure of the Suez Canal was a really major blow to British confidence. Um, mm. Thatcher herself, when she when she came when she got when she got into power when she was mm-hmm. in politics uh, herself said that Suez dealt a major blow to British to British confidence. That prior to Suez, they had thought they could do anything. After Suez, they thought they couldn't do anything. Oh wow! That it was this this neurotic kind of well, you know, okay, you know, we got to play second fiddle to everybody, you know, and and it was this like psychologically defining moment mm-hmm. uh, for a generation where we're just not the people who do that stuff anymore. That's just not we don't we don't have the military strength. We don't have the political. So what year you was know, the Suez? Fifty six. Fifty. So like, let's say. 
if we fast forward by a generation yeah and and everybody ages about 20 23 years yeah uh that if you were a politician looking to i don't know capitalize on that neurosis that shame mm-hmm. you would like want to make maybe make britain great again um <laughs> and and you could run like and say we used to do these really strong things yeah and maybe maybe we should do those again and by this point people like might be wanting to get rid might, of that might want to might want to might want to kind of do something about that yeah that is part of what i'm going to get to okay but that's maybe overstating that part of things a little bit cuz oh, there yeah. there's well, some I'm more i'm an american not a brit well so. yeah there, there's some there's some more immediate kind of issues that that come up there but the point i'm trying to make you're talking about all this is that politically and culturally uh, the british empire became part of history mm. for the generation born after the war it was it was mm. not it was oh. the, the the empire was it not a lived it was not a lived experience yeah. for them and a memory, mm-hmm. maybe cherished, maybe not, mm-hmm. uh, for the generations prior. Yeah. Okay. So okay. we have so we have the welfare state has become the norm. Uh, most Britons are focused more on domestic concerns than on British power and prestige abroad. At this okay. Point. In media, in Great Britain, especially in science fiction, this is the era of Doctor Who. This this is when Who starts, and and this is the story of a mostly benevolent time traveling adventuring alien. Uh, this is the era of the Quatermass series of radio radio. Wait, Doctor plays. Who starts in the fifties. Doctor Who starts in the sixties. Sixties. Okay. Doctor Doctor wow. Who is this is a decade. Okay. After that, but in in the sixties, in this in this interwar mm-hmm. consensus period. Okay. We have Doctor Who. We have the Quatermass series of radio dramas and movies. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not familiar with them, look no. them up. They're a hoot. Uh, they're they're so much an artifact of that time. Okay. But uh, also the the Triffids Day of the Triffids is is from okay. this kind of era. God, that's so, okay. Can you, and these okay. can you characterize like Doctor Who? I'm I've never watched an episode. Oh my so, god. I know. Okay. I know. Uh, so can you just characterize what it's like? Because I want to draw a comparison between that and something going on in America around the same time. Doctor Who is essentially mm-hmm. optimistic. Okay, and it is it is about a time traveling mm-hmm. human looking alien mm-hmm. uh, who travels through time and behaves as a trickster god with good intentions. Depending on on what era of Doctor Who you're talking about, sure. you know it gets darker and grimmer, it gets okay. lighter and fluffier. Early Doctor Who was very explicitly, still is defined as a a youth. A, a kids essentially mm-hmm. a kids TV show, but a lot of adults watch it. Um, and and yeah. it's the kind of thing that it gets scary, uh-huh. and you run behind the couch to hide, but you're peeking up over the top of the couch. That's but it that's ends the way well it gets. Every time. But it all but it but it winds up ending well in the okay. end. Uh, the bad guy is always defeated. Virtue oh. wins out in the end. Wow. Uh, different doctors have to sometimes do things that are maybe morally dubious, but that sure. comes in. That doesn't come in until decades later. Which, early, yeah. yeah, early on. But I'm talking about the early. Yeah, stuff. early okay. on, it's 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 very much uh, science fantasy morality wow. play. You know, but where morality ed- wins ed- educational, out. yeah, where morality wins out, educational uh-huh. kind of thing about going, we're traveling into history and let's learn about the Romans, let's learn about okay. you know this and that. Now, let me just uh, okay. push you off of that for a second. Right. In America, from 1959 to 1964, there's a TV series called The Twilight Zone. 
Yes. And I loves me the Twilight Zone. I've watched oh. every single episode. I have it on DVD because yeah. I don't trust streaming media to keep it for me. Yeah. I have it all. Yeah. And it it was a, a it, it was a mirror to our paranoia. It was a mirror to what is wrong with us. There was no optimism to it at all. In fact, many episodes leave you going Oh man, like like yeah. uh, just the 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 monsters over on Maple Street, I think it was called the, monster, where, the monsters on Maple Street. Is that the one where they? Yeah, they, uh, yeah, it's in it's in one of the textbooks for English in the state of California. Oh, fantastic! Is, is that script? Oh wow! And it's the yeah. one and it's the one where they're trying to break into the the one guy's yeah. Uh, um, what do you call it? Bomb shelter. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, where the bomb didn't have to drop for them to destroy For themselves. everybody to panic and destroy right. each other, yeah. And so I would just point out that on one side of the pond, you have TV that is look, forcing us to look at ourselves very uncomfortably, and we are building all kinds of, like, bomb shelters and stuff. Oh, yeah. And on the other side, you have... And this is sci-fi. Yeah. And on the other side, you have... Um, Positivity. Yeah. You, you have... Science and rationality are going to win us out of these wow. situations. And there is this upward cast wow. to these things. The Quartermass stories are uh-huh. schlock science. I mean, like yeah. like drive-in okay. schlock monster movie science sure. fiction. But what happens in them is Dr. Quartermass mm-hmm. comes up with the scientific solution to save the day... You know, and... See, we don't and, get that, we don't get that until, until Star Trek, really. In 1967, yeah, yeah. like like then yeah. you actually have a utopian writer, yeah, you know, and stuff like that. So we're hardcore we're, utopian, yeah, yeah. But we're like behind the times as yeah. far as that goes. That's, well, because because we we were we were we in were charge the, we of the were, Cold War. Yeah, we were the superpower yeah. facing off against the Soviets. The Brits were supporting us. Right. I mean, they they was like what, but ultimately could, stuck in the middle. There's but, a level but, of yeah, we can't control well, that. What, what are we gonna do? Yeah. Right. So. Um, then the late 70s happened. Ugh. And let's segue for a second to talking about gaming history for a moment. Okay. Also in the late 70s, um, uh, you and I were born. Well, well I was mid-70s. Okay. Well, 70s, I was literally mid-70s, 75. Oh, oh I'm 77, so I'm technically... So it's kind of uh, later. Yeah, later I'm late. Mid, I'm technically late. late. Yeah. yeah, okay. So for a moment, however, sure. let's, let's talk about gaming history because we're nerds. Yes. Um, in 1975... Mm-hmm. An auspicious year for geekdom. Uh, Games Workshop was yes. founded, and okay. uh, Games Workshop is the company responsible for Warhammer Forty Thousand, yes. Warhammer Fantasy Battle, and all of the myriad of intellectual properties that have spawned off of them since then. Okay, and um, they were founded in '75. They started out as literally a workshop where they made game boards for chess, backgammon, uh, and and so forth. Uh, and then, um, as soon as they could, they bought the United Kingdom distribution rights. They became the main importer for Dungeons and Dragons in the United Kingdom. Okay. And uh, they expanded very quickly into then publishing their own D and D modules and their own other kind of game books. Sure. Um, you may or may not have heard of the Fighting Fantasy series of books from the late seventies, early eighties. I've not. They're like choose your own adventure. Only okay. all it is is like a fight between one character and another character. Is this like my my Ace of Aces book where you're like choosing maneuvers? Very much, then, yeah. Which, Actually, by the way, it's, I have it's essentially yeah, it's essentially the same thing. Okay. And and if the author of that is a guy named Steve Jackson, 
Not the same Steve Jackson who okay. runs the game company in Texas. Right. Same name, both game guys, but right. there's one in Britain and one here. Uh, but that's that's okay. uh, like a like a sibling sure. to, to that series. So they, they start publishing this stuff. In February of 75, they began printing a newsletter uh, that at first was titled Owl and Weasel because they're Brits. They're British. And I, I don't, you know, prog rock. I don't know. I, I don't I, get it. And then in 1977, that became White Dwarf Magazine, which is now that I know. the flagship hobby magazine right. of Games Workshop. Uh, they founded Citadel Miniatures in 1979. That I know. Yep. And they produced, originally, they did this to produce miniatures for D&D. So your pewter wow. miniatures for yeah. your elves and your dwarves and your... 28mm. You know, yeah. Yeah. 28mm uh, artistic uh, scale. So, mm-hmm. you know, enlarged features to make things easier to see on the tabletop. Right. Uh, and sculptors, being creative types, they were, you know, sculpting wizards and elves and goblins and orcs and all that stuff. And they played around and they did, you know, a couple of one-off kind of sci-fi little miniatures. Oh, space elves okay. and space orcs and, you know. And it was all kind of done tongue-in-cheek, you know, sure. kind of as a joke, you know. Now, real quick, let me ask yeah. you. Um, are these the same people who are developing miniatures for, like, um, like if my... When I met my dad, because uh, okay. I'm adopted, yeah, at least by my dad. Uh, when I met him, uh, he was huge into miniatures games, okay, uh, and also he had a computer. He's the only person I ever knew that had a computer at the time, and like, okay. you played a text-based game, you know. Oh yeah, um, but it, it wasn't that; it was oh, a okay. knockoff because okay. we always did knockoffs. Okay, and, you know, everybody had Nintendo. We had the Sega, the sad, <coughs> the sad Sega, you know, the <coughs> Sega. Oh yeah, you know? okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, but he had these miniatures, and and there's a wonderful picture of the two of us. Um, I'm five, and I'm laying on my belly, legs up in the air like a five year old mm. does, and helping him build the buildings for Waterloo. And wow, yes. So like those that were <coughs> that were on a <coughs> plank of some sort, and oh yeah, there was grass, and then oh yeah, you know, oh wow, yeah, and, and there was hardcore. Game. Oh, he was huge Holy into that. Crap. Yeah. Um, so that was like my introduction. Nice. Yes. Yeah. So now Citadel did, did not make, do historical okay. stuff. Who did that? Raoul Partha. Okay. Which is mostly defunct now, but they still have operations in Europe, and okay. you can get reprints of their stuff sure. from Ironwind Metals. By the way, if you're listening, I'd totally shill your stuff forever. Iron I would too. Wind. It apparently is you know. tied to my childhood. So yeah. please. So for all your Ironwind Metals needs. There you go. So, um, so they they founded Citadel in '79 and they started okay. making miniatures for D and D and for this other stuff. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And now we're going to circle back around to that here in a little bit. Okay. But now, I I originally thought that I was going to ask you what you remember about the late '70s, but I remember <laughs> that you're you know two and a half years younger yeah. than I am, and the answer would be some variation on nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let me tell you, as sure. somebody slightly older, I don't remember a goddamn thing either. <laughs> I was only four in 1979, and yeah. my clearest memories of the 70s involve my toys, uh, the Christmas when I got a rocking horse, okay. and uh, one of my early birthday cakes. Sure. Uh, I, I have, Pinocchio. I have photos. Yeah, but I they, mean, they're I mean, not but actual memories. No, yeah, there's no, there's, yeah. yeah, there's no clear, yeah. actual memory in your head. Yeah. So thankfully, we're historians and we can look things up. Indeed. And uh, the overview of the late '70s, uh, it sucked. Yeah. 
It was um, an awful time. It was. It was. It was. It was, it was a dismal, dismal time in world history. It was. Yeah. Um, after the Iranian Revolution, there was an oil crisis that was mm-hmm. caused not so much by an actual shortage, but just by worldwide panic. Well, there was also an oil uh, oil shortage uh, in that happened 73, seventy three, yeah. which I'm going to talk about in a second. Okay. Because that earlier oil crisis in seventy three mm-hmm. had started a spiral of stagflation, which right. was a whole new economic term. Yes. Nobody. It had never. It had never happened on any kind of a large enough scale to be defined before, but worldwide, yes, um, prices were going up and unemployment was also going up. Yeah. And historically, economists were all looking at it like, oh, how did that happen? I don't. What? Yeah. No. Wait. Are you high? Am I right. high? <laughs> like, wait, because that that was not a set of circumstances that had ever been seen before. Yeah. And um, well, it turns out that Keynesian economics works really, really well, except for you get to a point where everybody's bought all the shit they need. Yeah, and then Keynesian economics and then stops being as effective. Yeah, Keynesian economics is like is is a lot like um, rehab and maybe CPR. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And you don't do those walking around. Yeah, once um, once you're up and actually stable, you yeah. don't actually want to continue doing compressions on somebody's chest. Right now, now you can certainly dial it back a little. Yeah, you know, Kenzie economics yeah. isn't just chest compressions. Well, yeah, but but you know, yeah. you, you do want to dial it back a little and and get into some other stuff. The other thing you, you need to also, find other tools. Yeah, is kind of what we're saying. Well, yeah. and also the the derivations that America and Britain were using on Keynesian economics yeah. was based on. Uh, the world is bleeding to death. Um, America is going to save it with money. And by the 1970s, I mean, we're talking three decades later, yeah. a generation and a half has passed, and Japan is on its feet economically. And, and Japan is eating the United States' lunch. Yes. Which I'm going to talk about when okay. we talk about Battletech, because that's <laughs> relevant there. Okay. Hi there, Karita Combine. How you doing? <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you have a lot of countries that are now no longer so dependent on either superpower. Mm-hmm. And both superpowers had... There's a there's a very human tendency to, to get to the point where you're saying, this is how it is, this is how it will always be. Yeah. I remember very clearly Billy Idol saying rock and roll forever. He was wrong within five years. Yeah. You know, and, and so yeah. economic policies, as same, it turns same out. Same kind of yeah. thing. Well, and eventually you figure out that, you know, um, just because you have a hammer doesn't mean every problem is, in fact, a nail. Yes, it's indeed true. And, and that's, that's what wound up happening. Mm-hmm. And so, so in the UK, again, mm-hmm. smaller economy, canary in a coal mine kind of effect. Um, the problem was especially serious. Unemployment was very high at the same time that inflation approached 24%. That's huge. That's massive. That's it's terrifying. Yeah. And so the Labor Party at that point was then in power, and they made a deal with unions to cap negotiated pay raises at 5% or below in 1975. And the idea was if we can keep wages from going up too fast – we can prevent the we, we're going to try to prevent inflation from continuing to go up right. by by capping wages because that's something that we can make okay. a deal with labor and you know kind of kind of get this done. Now in America, it was at least in California, it was property taxes. Yes, that was that was the big yes. Kicker. So well, it's yeah. interesting. So, These things yeah. are happening at the yeah. same time. So um, the agreement stated that free collective bargaining would mm-hmm. come back in 1978. 
Okay, so for these three so years, they're literally just freezing. They're just they're saying okay. we're just we're just trying to freeze wages, not right. not even totally freeze wages. We right. just want to keep the raises small. Okay. So inflation did decrease. They got inflation mostly under control. It came down to I want to say it was about five or seven seven or eight percent. And about the same time, uh, but about the same time that the income agreement was set to end, it spiked again. And no, wait, wait, wait. So. At at seventy eight, at, at seventy five, uh-huh. they, they they instituted they instituted only. a five five percent wage cap, and yeah. inflation got back under control. Okay, and then seventy seven, seventy six, seventy seven passed. Inflation Same. is still it's still higher than anybody would like, but it was much more under control. Sure. And then in seventy eight, uh-huh. it spiked again. Or inflation. in seventy seven, seventy eight, inflation spiked again okay. right before this agreement was supposed to expire. Oh wow! Okay, and uh, the the uh, prime minister Callahan, who mm-hmm. by the way had made his reputation being, mm-hmm. you know, unions guy. He was he was sure. referred to as the keeper of the cloth cap <laughs> because he he was you know the the friend of the union working man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he called for an extension of the agreement. He said, "Look, we we can't we can't go back to unrestricted bargaining." Right. And unions unanimously threw him the finger. Now in Britain, that's two fingers. Yes, yes, yes. I, so. Yes, you're right. They <laughs> unanimously threw him two fingers. And the winter of 1978 and 79 was marked by massive strikes mm-hmm. across the British economy. Now that's interesting because in America, it le- we we see a, a parallel thing happening, and these two societies are intrinsically yeah. linked. But yeah. In America, you see something very similar, um, and you start to see a lot of labor unrest. Yeah. And a lot of it is because this labor is in a lot of uh, sectors that is now open to foreign trade. Yeah, and competition. Uh, But others are in things that probably should have been public sectors that aren't. Yeah, I'm thinking of the uh, the air traffic controllers union uh, and and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I think. At this point, mm-hmm. this this is a good place for us to wait. But who gets elected? Cap- no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good one, good yeah, one. Well you. played. I, I think I think we we can we can pick up here because this is this is a good sure. place. We've we've gotten this is the prelude out okay. of the way, and we can get into talking about the actual rise of Thatcher. What 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 happened from here, and cool. then get into 40k, which I'm champing at the bit to do. So part two, part two coming up, coming up, either in a week or in three days, depends Whatever, on whatever something yeah. you so. know, weirdness. Excellent. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, bitch and Camaro. <laughs> All right, so we're halfway through talking about uh, Warhammer 40,000 and Thatcherism. Mm-hmm. What 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 struck you? What is your big takeaway from this? Well, uh, you know, and I, I tried to highlight this as a point, was that um, if you look at uh, the, the post-war consensus, it's mm-hmm. not just, you know, we got to rebuild, but that the uh, welfare state absolutely needs to be baked into this if we're mm-hmm. going to, A, stop communism, yeah. which is, it was a huge goal of the British, they were just super scared of it, but also, B, address the the situation that brought about fascism and i just get a kick out of the fact that every time fascism is there there's a whole bunch of people wringing their hands about communism instead it's it's like those are opposites and they do not come and meet it's not a horseshoe at all and yet people react to them as though they're equally as bad and it's like no it's so i that that was the thing um i i really liked what you had to say about doctor who i found that 
fascinating beyond oh. uh, its representation in in the episode. So okay, I really like that. Yeah. So uh, hey, how did your uh, sortie thing go? Did that well? Happen? It, no, it hadn't happened yet. Oh, that's cool. the twenty fifth. Oh, that's right. It's the twenty fifth. Okay. Um, and uh, plans have actually come up. I'm not going to be able to make it, but oh. anybody who is going to be here in Sacramento. Uh, in town, uh, I do recommend it. It's a very minor street fight being thrown by the Sacramento Fry Fetcher Guild, mm-hmm. <clears throat> a whole bunch of guys with uh, you know blunted long swords, and we're inviting people from all over the state to come and you know good naturedly fight like friends. That's fantastic. Like friends do. Um, I'm and, looking at my calendar to see what I yeah. have that maybe I could bring my children yeah, to. Uh, it's going to be at the uh, Sacramento Tournverein, which is the German Cultural Association okay. historical building in its own right. Oh, nice. Uh, interesting history there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I highly recommend it if you have the time and the okay. opportunity to go by. It's going to be a fun time for everybody. Cool. Um, what do you got going on? Well, uh, now this is August that you were talking about. August yes. 25th. Okay, so um, I'm going to tell you some dates I've got coming up. Gesundheit. Yes, uh, sorry. In September. <clears throat> on September 12th, uh, I will be doing comedy in uh, Walnut Creek. Okay. Uh, so I'm coming down there uh, to my fellow East Bay friends. I'm hoping you all can come to that. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that this will drop after my show on September 7th here in Sacramento, okay. as well as after my show... Uh, in Benicia on the 24th. Uh, in October, what I really am excited about, though, is that uh, the Capital Punishment is coming back. Nice. Uh, we're having our return. Bigger, bolder, better. Uh, there's going to be some new and improved things to it. I uh, like it. Yeah. All three of us have traveled uh, <clears throat> across the, the, the pond. Nice. Uh, and so hopefully we'll have some uh, more fun puns. So that'll All be right. a lot of fun. Are there any books that you want people to know about? Um, right now, I mean, uh, I've recommended it uh, previously and be, kind of because of the compressed timeline that we're recording these on. I sure. haven't really gotten out of it. But Honor in the Dust, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep... still on it. I'm yeah. going to keep plugging... Sure. It, because it really is a fascinating read. Okay. And um, I don't remember who it was who said that history doesn't really repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. Yeah. Um, that was his... one of my coworkers. He 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 said that. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't think so. But well, you see, he told you know, me that. Yeah, okay. Me. Oh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. yeah no. Um, <laughs> but uh, it the, the book really does uh, make that point. That's fantastic. Very crystalline. In clarity. Nice. So, how about you? What what you got to recommend for? A uh, couple books. Uh, one, if you like sports history, there's a wonderful <laughs> book by a guy named Josh Gross, who used okay. to be, I believe, an MMA reporter. Okay. Um, and uh, he wrote a book called Ali versus Inoki. It's uh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. So Ali at some point Muhammad fought, Ali fought pasta. No, <laughs> not gnocchi. Oh, okay. Inoki. Oh, okay. Antonio Inoki, a okay. uh, pro wrestler from Japan, huge in uh, in in Japan. Um, and Muhammad Ali wanted to fight a wrestler, and it was a the first. Well, technically not the first, but the first majorly publicized mixed martial arts martial arts event. Because Inoki, in addition to being a pro wrestler, if you're a Japanese pro wrestler, you also know how to shoot fight, which is okay. yeah. Um, and uh, so, just explain so, that term. For oh, shoot! Fight is essentially you are fighting for real. 
so all this okay. submission fighting that you see. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, no, the Japanese don't do anything halfway. No, that's, actually, that's one of the one of the most <laughs> remarkable things about Japanese culture throughout history is the banzai instinct is really a thing. <laughs> the fun thing about uh, actually Japanese wrestling, somebody once uh, compared it because uh, American pro wrestling. I'm a huge pro wrestling fan. You'll see in an upcoming episode. Um, but uh, Japanese pro wrestling is um, a real fight that they pass off as fake. And American wrestling is a fake fight that they, they pass, pass off, off as real. real. Now, that was said by Jim Cornette, who's I, a, a I, Kentucky Valley uh, wrestling promoter. Okay. Um, and he's got a thousand wonderful fun things to say. <laughs> and and he's not too wrong. Like, they, they basically... Well, there's barbed wire and, like, Well, that's the death matches. That's and, different. Well, well, but but that still hurts. Okay, but but that's, yeah. my, that's my exposure to anything yeah. I've seen yeah. about Japanese pro wrestling. Well, so Japanese Because that's wrestling. bonkers enough that, like, we hear about it over here when it sure. happens. Sure. Well, Japanese pro wrestling is essentially, it's like 90% real, but the outcome is still fixed. So what you'll do is you'll wrestle a guy, and then you'll, you'll <coughs> give him Holy a chance crap. to get out of the hole. Okay. So Ali versus Inoki, it, they couldn't even agree on the rules. Uh, they finally did agree on the rules. They were no, rules to absolutely nerf the heck out of Inoki, because Ali's yeah. stock would have fallen. Yeah. And it was 15 rounds. Of the most boring ass fight you could ever possibly imagine. It was, but the wow. book highlights how boring it is. Yeah, but it's but so man, fascinating. But, but it's written in a way that makes yeah. it fascinating to read. So that's okay. one I would recommend awesome. if you're not down for sports history. Um, I'm totally going to recommend a book called The Sex Side of Life by Constance M. Chen. All right. Um, and I, I absolutely, like sounds, oh yeah. No, I absolutely have a brain crush on uh, Mary Ware Dennett. Uh, there are two women that were okay. kind of the leading pioneers for the birth control movement in America. Okay. Uh, Margaret Sanger was yeah. one. She got all the press. Mary Ware Dennett was actually the one who did all the research. Uh, Margaret Sanger okay. was a strong believer and early adopter but she didn't have the intellectual chops that Mary Ware Dennett had. And Mary Ware okay. Dennett had uh, just a fascinating life. So it's, it's I really like um, books, you know, because I'm a women's historian. Yeah. I really like books about the women that you don't hear about. So, yeah. like, for everybody who's heard about Susan B. Anthony, yeah. I'm a big fan of Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Okay. Which I'm name dropping names that no one's ever that heard I'm, of. Right? I'm looking at you like, okay, so, I'm yeah. totally nodding along. So, I want to hear about this, but I know nothing. But for, yeah, and I'll so, recommend her biography some other okay. time. But uh, The Sex Side of Life is about Mary Ware Dennett uh, and it's called Mary Ware Dennett's Pioneering Battle for the Birth Control and Sex Education and nice. it is such a good read so okay. if, you, if awesome. you are interested in either of those things I recommend those books alright so anyway uh, so next week we're going to pick up where we left off yes uh, talking about Warhammer 40k yes well and we're going to have to talk about actual Thatcherism but yes. that's going to be pretty brief cool okay cool <laughs> brief <laughs> so alright well we'll see y'all later <laughs>